and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Kate Fulton. Me, Diana Toman. And me, Clive Roslin. Coming up this week, we have Bishop David Walker, who's the Bishop of Manchester, and he's going to be talking to us about the Church of England bishops adopting the full IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. We've also got the author Tim Tate, who's talking to us about his new book, Hitler's British Traitors. Also coming up, Martin Winston, Education Officer for the Holocaust Educational Trust, will be telling us about the life and work of the Holocaust survivor Joseph Pearl, who's died aged 88. And our own special Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips will be giving us a recipe or two for breaking the fast on Yom Kippur. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. The Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn once praised the activist who smeared pro-Palestine graffiti on the walls of the Warsaw Ghetto in 2010. Eva Jazowitz had years earlier called for terrorists to target Israeli politicians, which Mr Corbyn knew at the time of his support for her. Ms Jazowitz, who's 40, had been due to speak at a panel event run by Momentum in parallel with the Labour Party's conference in Liverpool. She's now withdrawn. The founder of Momentum, John Landsman, who's Jewish, said it had been trial by media and that the graffiti she'd written, including Free Gaza and Palestine, was not anti-Semitic. The Holocaust Educational Trust said defacing the Warsaw Ghetto was sickening and shameful. Church of England bishops this week adopted the full International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism at a meeting in Oxford. It comes after the Archbishop of Canterbury's thinly-veiled attack on Labour's governing body, which at first refused to adopt all 11 accompanying examples, but later accepted them, with additional clarification regarding free speech. Haredi rabbis have distanced themselves from Ephraim Mervis's groundbreaking guidance about LGBT issues for Jewish schools. Announcements from the chief rabbi have often been greeted with derision by Chinuch rabbis, so some believe the low-key response has come after recent battles with Ofsted, which has expressed deep concern about some of the teachings in strictly orthodox schools. But Chinuch UK has said the guidance is only relevant to those schools which fall under the chief rabbi's authority. The Countdown presenter Rachel Riley has revealed that she suffered online abuse over her criticism of Jeremy Corbyn in the ongoing anti-Semitism row. Ms Riley, who's Jewish, revealed she was called a Tory, brainwashed and thick, but said she formed her opinions based on available evidence. And finally, tributes have been paid to Holocaust survivor Joseph Pearl, who's died at the age of 88. Mr. Pearl was just 10 when he and his parents and eight sisters were forced from their home in Czechoslovakia and taken to a concentration camp in Poland. When the camp was cleared, he spent the next 18 months trying to find his family, passing through seven camps in all, including Bergen-Belsen and Dachau. He dedicated his life after the war to teaching others about the horrors of the Shoah. Thank you, Viv. And first on The Jewish Views this week, Richard Ferrer, the editor of The Jewish News, joins us to review your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Well, let's look at the front page and the headline reads, it's very dramatic, Warsaw Ghetto Desecrator Quits Momentum Event. 
Yes, we're talking about Ava Jezevitz here, who is a, a renowned activist, pro-Palestinian campaigner, about 10 years ago now. And she's apologized since, it has to be said. She daubed the words free Gaza Palestine on the wall, the only one remaining wall of the Warsaw Ghetto. Quite an iconic memorial to those that lost their lives back during the Second World War. She has been invited, or at least she was invited, by Momentum, which is the grassroots organisation for the Labour Party, to take part in their conference event, which is taking place alongside the Labour Party conference later this month, to speak at a panel. Well, we found out in the last couple of hours, actually, that she has now withdrawn. As I said, she has apologised. She's uh, had a lot of criticism over her actions, and uh, she's no longer going to be taking part, which uh, I think is going to be a huge sigh of relief to a lot of people that were, uh, I think, particularly insulted and upset that she was invited in the first place. But there are other stories in there which are quite dramatic as well in this week's paper. We have a big picture of Luciana Berger. Now it's no no stranger to the paper, Luciana Berger, often for sadly negative reasons over the Labour anti-Semitism storm of the last few years. But uh, time for a celebration this week because we sponsor an event called the No to Hate Crime Awards alongside the Daily Mirror, which is basically celebrating people that take on racism, intolerance, bigotry and fight it really head on and uh, Luciana has won this year's Joe Cox Memorial Award for bravery and heroism and I don't need to remind listeners that Joe Cox of course was the Labour MP that was sadly murdered in her constituency only a couple of years ago so she has won that award along with many other people in lots of different organisations individuals people at the very front end of the fight against not only anti-Semitism but Islamophobia all forms of bigotry and racism the No to Hate Crime Awards and we're going to have a huge amount of coverage in that in next week's paper so uh, watch out for that So that's something to talk about next week and you're also talking about the Archbishop of Canterbury meeting with the Chief Rabbi Well, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and the Chief Rabbi welcomed in the Jewish New Year only a few days ago. They're actually quite good friends or allies, I suppose you would call them. They were in Israel recently. They've done a lot of fantastic interfaith work together. And bishops in the Church of England only in the last couple of days have backed IHRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism that was causing all this controversy and problems in recent weeks. So they have wholeheartedly backed that definition now and the chief rabbi and him were uh, were did a video together actually in the chief rabbi's front room a place i have been it's full of lovely books and fabulous tea and cake so i'm sure they had a lovely time and they renewed their commitment uh, to each other as as faith leaders in the uk and actually we'll be talking to bishop david walker from manchester about that very shortly and what else is there that you think is important in well, today's paper? I remember back in 1993, I was just graduating university and the Oslo Accords were signed. And of course, after the first intifada of the early, uh, was it the late 1980s, uh, attitudes were very kind of negative and hopes were very low that there'd ever be a peace in the Middle East. And then the Oslo Accords were signed and uh, you know, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shook hands on the White House lawn. And there was genuine hope that there'd be reconciliation and the two sides would acknowledge each other's rights to their own land and independence. And what's happened since? It's just been 25 years of negativity, of enmity, of, of, of I think, downhill the whole way. I think we're worse off now than we were 25 years ago. So we're looking back on a quarter of a century, asking simply, where did it go wrong? And where will we be in 25 years' time? Because I don't think either side 
can really afford another 25 years like the last 25 years we've had to endure. And you've done a special report on this, I gather. We've spoken to historians, we've spoken to, to analysts, to people that were involved on both sides. And I think unanimously uh, on, on both sides, the overall viewpoint is that this was one of the greatest missed opportunities between Israel and the Palestinians with fault certainly on both sides. Although I think, you know, the Israelis did offer a, a great deal in return for Palestinian independence. Unfortunately, it was squandered as it was squandered in 1947 and 1948. So, uh, yes, let's only hope that the next 25 years uh, bring a, a sweeter outcome. What page of the paper is that on if people want to read this report, special report? Yes, yeah, so, so Jenny Fraser, who's one of our, our great freelance writers, and she's written it on page 14. What's your celebrity big brother bit? My celebrity big brother bit? Mm. Oh, I'm glad you asked. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered, Clive. Well, yes, I'm, I'm sure our listeners who you know, have their finger on pop culture are aware of Celebrity Big Brother and the big furore that took place only a week or two ago involving a soap actress called Roxanne Pallet, who was in the house and she accused fellow housemate Ryan Thomas of physically abusing her and video subsequently showed that indeed he didn't punch her as she suggested and she was I think a target of a lot of, um, of, of, of anger and disappointment and criticism and then when she came out of the house she admitted she got it all wrong she was oversensitive I mean she could have ended this guy's career if, if, if she wasn't in a house full of cameras when this happened and there was video evidence that this man was absolutely innocent this man's career and reputation could been absolutely ruined so the question we're asking now or rather rabbi debbie young somers is asking now is what does the roxanne pallet saga teach us about repentance about teshuva in the week of yom kippur and the simple question here is does someone like roxanne pallet undermine genuine victims of abuse the me too campaign uh, where is the line drawn what does it mean to be a a, a man today and and and, and uh, behavioral issues in terms of society what are the norms now now. So uh, Rabbi Debbie Young-Somers has uh, concluded by saying uh, Teshuva is only complete when you can change your behaviour next time you attempted to make the same mistake. So I think Roxanne Pallet has probably learnt her lesson here. It's certainly been a talking point that's been discussed around water coolers for the last couple of weeks. So you can read all about that on page 34. Thank you very much, Richard. And that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Richard Ferrer, editor of the Jewish News. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now I have the pleasure of talking to Bishop David Walker from Manchester as the Church of England has recently adopted the full IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and we are privileged to be able to talk to Bishop Walker about that. Bishop Walker, just I mean, you're you're, you're from um, from Manchester. What and there is quite a big Jewish community there. What is there in interaction between the the, the Church of England, the, the churches, and the Jewish community in Manchester? It's, it's very good. I mean, actually, where I live in the Broughton area of Salford, most of my immediate neighbours are Jewish. And in fact, the, the boundary of the Eruf is actually the boundary of our uh, of our garden wall. So I, I live very close to, to an Orthodox Jewish community here. And uh, it's a great place to live. There's good relationships between uh, the various different faiths within the Manchester area. I host meetings in my house once every couple of months to bring together the different 
leaders from different uh, different faiths across Greater Manchester, and there's always good representation from the Jewish community as part of that, who play a, a very much a full part in our in our life together as people who believe that faith is is one of the most important things about our lives. So you must have seen, because you are close, as you say, to a, a big Jewish community in Salford, you must have seen the effects of anti-Semitism. There was an incident uh, a year or two ago at one of the, the metro stations, the tram stations, not, not that far away from here. There have obviously been desecrations at times of, uh, of, of cemeteries, of memorials, and sometimes it's just uh, that there's attitudes, language, inappropriate words that are, that are used. But all together, this, you know, this leads to the Jewish community feeling at, at, at times that, the, you know, that they're not fully accepted, they're not treated as though they're as full citizens, as full part of this country as, 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 as others are. When that happens, obviously, we try to address it as best as we can from, from the faith communities. Did you feel that there was a discussion to be had about accepting the full definition? And if so, what was that discussion? From the Church of England's point of view and the College of Bishops, where we took the decision a couple of days ago, I mean, effectively, this was simply ratifying the way in which we've been operating for at least the last 75 years since the, the foundation of the Council of Christians and Jews, I think, was around 1942. And ever since then, we've, we've effectively followed the definition. But it seemed important at this stage given the you know, the concerns being expressed by the Jewish community, both in Manchester and far beyond, that we actually you know, make a public declaration that we are fully signed up to the IHRA definition and uh, all its examples. Was there any dissension or were there any views against that amongst the bishops? Uh, I'm not allowed to, dis- to describe what goes on in detail in a private meeting, but I think I can, I can say with all honesty, it was not a matter that required an awful lot of... Uh, yeah, soul-searching, uh, and, and it was a matter that we were overwhelmingly supportive of. Bishops around the country, all of us, wherever we're working, we know the importance of, of good relationships between our different faith communities, and uh, and we can see why these this definition, the examples associated with it, are, are necessary in order to make it clear that we have no truck with anti-Semitism in any shape or form. There seem to have been a growth in anti-Semitism in this country. Why do you think that's happened? It's a, difficult, it's a difficult one, that. I think there has been a growth in this country in hate-related incidents of every sort. And often in response to some event, we saw an increase in incidents after the Brexit vote. We saw an increase in incidents for a short period of time, and not just in Manchester, after the a terrorist attack at the Manchester Arena. And when those hate incidents happen, those rises, they seem to go across the spectrum. So it's, it's not, I don't think that the, the Jewish community are expressly singled out, but anti-Semitism, along with abuse of uh, people for, of other religions, uh, racial prejudice, homophobia, even uh, rise in hate incidents directed at disabled people. Uh, after events which and nothing to do with that particular part of our community whatsoever, but somehow they they seem to legitimate for a period of time people expressing hate against any target that they that they might uh, might see and and I guess you know, so we're Jewish members of the community, particularly uh, uh, wearing distinctive dress as many would do around where I live then they they present a target in in a country such as such as England where the the Church of England is the the Christianity is the majority religion 
Is it sometimes difficult for, for bishops in positions such as yourselves to relate to the minority communities like, like the Jewish community? Well, I'd like to think not. I, mean, I, mean, I, you know, I, I work very close with the Jewish community and their leaders and, 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 and those of other faith communities. And, and I think those, the strength of those relationships was proven last year when we had the uh, arena attack in Manchester. And uh, you know, I spent the next few weeks of my life seeing f- far more of the imam of the central mosque and, and one of the rabbis <laughs> and I feel this is my wife or my family yeah. and, and, and it's really important on those occasions that the fact that we, that we know each other well that we respect each other like each other hugely and are seen together in public uh, you know, almost inseparably I think that becomes, becomes vitally important but we, you know, we're able to do that because we, we, we do like each other <laughs> we, do, we do respect each other's faith and, and, and we you know, we, we kind of watch out for each other and care for each other. Uh, we've had in, in Manchester, I think it's last 12 or 13 years now, there's been a very strong Jewish Muslim forum that's done some really excellent work yeah, alongside the various bilateral, uh, multilateral um, organizations. We have those bilaterals between the different faith communities that are equally warm and strong. Well, that's wonderful. And on that very positive, upbeat note, we'll have to end it there. Thank you very much, Bishop Walker. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and we're delighted to be talking to Tim Tate, the author of a new book, Hitler's British Traitors. Tim, can we start off by just getting perhaps a short outline of the plot, though I realise that is going to be pretty difficult considering what it's covering? Sure. It's a book which investigates the people, the British people who worked on behalf of Nazi Germany in Britain during and before world just before World War Two. It's based on declassified MI5 and other government files. And it shows there were a surprising number of people who carried out espionage, acts of sabotage, and wanted to bring about a German victory. This must have been involving you in an enormous amount of research. Did you have to get past the the 30-year rule and, and Freedom of Information Act and all of that? Thankfully, no, not completely. Most of the files I consulted, and there are scores and scores and scores of these, were gradually declassified and released to the National Archives between 2000 and indeed Christmas 2017, so as recently as that. Their release was haphazard, to put it mildly, and with no discernible order. What is also evident is that there are still a lot more files to come which have yet to be released. But what I found was an enormous amount of material, internal reports, reports from undercover MI5 agents, showing the extent of the treachery by British citizens. You do, in fact, say that there were more than 70 British traitors who were convicted in secret trials working to help Nazi Germany win the war. That's an astonishing number. 
it struck me as remarkable. I hadn't realized there was anything more than a handful when I began the research. And every file I pulled led me to another file, led me to another file. And here were these prosecutions. These were actual prosecutions of men and women who spied for Germany, who carried out acts of deliberate sabotage aimed at enabling a German victory. And what was more, I think, surprising to me was that beyond these prosecutions, these 70 prosecutions, there were hundreds of internments of British fascists, pro-Nazi British fascists, based on explicit evidence of what they got up to. Is this the same internment as on the Isle of Man? It's part of the whole internment, well, controversy, I think is probably the right word. British citizens were interned uh, with some reluctance by the government under defence regulations, along with German and Italian enemy aliens, as they were called. And most of those went to the Isle of Man, whereas most of the British fascists went to the prisons in across the UK. This whole story doesn't put the MI5 in very good light, does it? It's a mixed bag, that one. MI5 at the start of the war was in a truly dreadful shape. It had been starved of money and resources and had very, very few officers indeed and fewer agents. Its activities were both remarkable given that lack of resource at the beginning of the war for what they did uncover, but also they were remarkable because the people controlling it in the very early stages of the war were to a large degree uncontrollable, uncontrolled, and really not very efficient. So it's very much a mixed bag. You say that the book also shows how archaic attitudes to social status and gender in Whitehall resulted, if you like, in injustice not being done in an equitable way. Was that due to social mores of the time or not? What is absolutely crystal clear from these files is that aristocratic pro-Nazi British fascists, and there were many of those, got treated a great deal more leniently than what you might call the foot soldiers of the British fascist movement. It was by and large the what the aristocrats themselves would have termed the lesser orders, the lower orders, who got lengthy prison sentences. The well-connected British fascists, if they got any punishment or anything at all, they got interned in moderately comfortable circumstances. But the vast majority of the truly elevated ones never had their collars felt at all. That's interesting, because we are talking, aren't we, about the top of the tree, if I can put it like that, amongst the royal family? There is reference to the royal family in these files, but virtually nothing which, which really would implicate any member directly of the royal family. What you are looking at is their, their senior staff. For example, the Duke of Buchlieu, who was the royal steward of the household and who was a willing and enthusiastic celebrant of Hitler's 50th birthday in April 1939, and who continued to lobby on behalf of Berlin after the war had started 
finally Buckingham Palace had enough and fired him and sent him off into exile on his estates in Scotland in the early part of 1940. Beyond him, there are any number of senior aristocrats who committed acts which other less elevated, less well-protected British fascists got jail time for, and yet they had no, there was nothing done to them. And was Mosley connected with this? Mosley does appear in these files, but what emerges is that Mosley and the British Union of Fascists, which, let's be honest, was the premium brand, if you like, of British fascism at the time, Indeed. was much less of a threat than the more shadowy groups, the Nordic League, the and, and, and their and their associate groups, who were actively planning and carrying out sabotage and were spying for Germany, and yet were doing so in the shadows, if you like. In terms of fiction, is this the sort of scenario that Robert Harris? mentions or outlines in his book Fatherland, in other words, a pro-Nazi regime which in fact takes over the United Kingdom. What the files that I found show is that there were three, not one, not two, but three plots overlapping at times in terms of personnel and in chronological time, three plots to bring about a fascist revolution, that's their words, not mine, and to replace the elected government with a puppet regime loyal to Berlin just as soon as Hitler's troops landed in Britain. Tim Tate, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. If you'd like any more information about any of the guests or about any of the stories that have been featured on this show, go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News. Now, tributes are paid this week to Joseph Pearl, who survived seven Nazi camps following his death aged 88. And... With us now is Martin Winston, the Education Officer for Holocaust Educational Trust. Now, what is particularly special about Joseph Pearl, Martin? I think really maybe there are two things which were special about Joe. One, like all of the survivors who speak for us, he's someone who endured unimaginable experiences, really, really horrific experiences through the course of the Second World War was able to come to this country and rebuild his life. And I think, you know, all survivors to some extent really sort of leave us in awe that it, at the sort of strength of the human spirit to overcome that. But I think it's important to say as well that with, again, with, with many, many survivors, but I think certainly with Joe, is he shouldn't simply be identified by that by that experience. I think one of the themes that's come through in the last few days in the tributes, the many tributes which have rightly been paid to him, is that he was a survivor, of course, but he was also a father, a husband, a grandfather. He was a member of his community. And it's clear that just as a person, he was someone who enriched so many people's lives. And people felt lucky to have, to have had contact with him. So I think just as a person, he, is, he was a very remarkable human being. But there's, there's even more to it than that, isn't there? Because he, was, he did amazing things when he was in the camp. And he lived in the most appalling conditions and he helped his family. All sorts of extraordinary stories about him. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, in, in a way, Joe's story, although it includes some very familiar names like Auschwitz-Birkenau or Bergen-Belsen or Buchenwald, also tells us about you know, maybe areas of the Holocaust that people aren't quite so familiar with. You know, he, this was a, a boy who grew up in a small town, more or less a village in what was Czechoslovakia then, Ukraine today, where the Hungarians played a very significant role in what happened to him. You know, it's important, obviously, for people to realize that it wasn't just the Nazis, wasn't just the Germans. And his story of survival is remarkable. I mean, he was, he and his family were pushed over the border from what was then under Hungarian occupation to German-occupied Poland. And he survived for a long time, really with his own wits. He was separated from his family living in basically in forests and fields and then through the camps in which he found himself it you know it's a succession of extraordinary events i mean in particular in one of the camps that he was in he was involved in an attempted uprising there was faced the risk of death for that essentially was able to survive by escaping and then taking on somebody's identity and and as I, I said earlier i think you know all stories of survival are remarkable but i think his is particularly it, it's very clear that one of the things that kept him going was his faith in his family he spent 18 months that, didn't he searching for his family Absolutely, because they were, they were separated. He'd gone off to forage for food, and whilst he was away, then you know some some of the people in the the place where they were being held were murdered. Others were taken off somewhere where he didn't he didn't know. And it's remarkable, in one sense, that he was able to find members of his family again during the war. But tragically, he also then witnessed them being murdered. But he never gave up hope that some of them had survived, particularly his father. And as I'm sure you're, you're aware, I mean, one of the most remarkable elements of Joe's story is that he was finally reunited with his father 20, more than 20 years after the war ended, which I think is just incredible. And I think you know, many survivors kept that hope that they would find someone, but all too often it didn't materialize. So, so for that to have been the case, I think, is a, a, an, an astonishing experience. Why did it take 20 years after the war to find his father? I think, well, a lot of it was obviously because of the Cold War. Joe ended up being liberated in Germany, liberated in Buchenwald, but he ended up coming eventually to France and then to the UK. His father stayed behind the Iron Curtain. And I think this was the case for many survivors' families. You know, most survivors tended to come from countries which after the war ended up under communism. And often it was very, very difficult to find out what had happened to relatives. So he, he did become aware slightly earlier that his father had survived, I think in the 1950s. But he wasn't able to physically go to, to, to visit him until the 1960s. It's an incredibly sad story, but a wonderful one to, to think that he managed to survive all that time absolutely and i think i think it, it may be an, e an equally wonderful aspect of the story which is, is one of the things which joe most movingly spoke about was the fact that after the hungarian invasion and the situation deteriorated in in their village the family had a uh, safer torah which had been passed down i believe from joe's great great grandfather and his father buried this with other possessions in the grounds of their house. 
And when his father eventually returned after the war, he was able to retrieve it and finally to pass it on to Joe in the 1970s. And I believe it's now held by Joe's local synagogue in Bushy Heath. And, and, and I think, you know, when we think about the Holocaust, we obviously rightly think about people. But it's also, of course, important for us to think about you know, culture, about community and faith. And this in its own way is an astonishing story of survival and eventually of a person and an object being reunited. Did Joe ever give testimony over video links to the National Holocaust Museum, the scheme that they run in Nottingham? I, I'm not sure, actually, to be perfectly honest. I, what I do know is that he was one of the, the, the earliest survivors in the UK to begin to talk about his experience. And in um, 1989, he gave an interview with the British Library, which was the first really comprehensive attempt to record survivor testimonies. It was only an audio testimony. And he's certainly been interviewed for by, by many other organizations since. I'm not sure if he has by the National Holocaust Center. And I think he, you know, he spoke for many, many years in schools as well. I think that's a hugely important thing. Joe began speaking with us in the mid-1990s, which you know, is, is 50 years after the end of the war, but was relatively early. There were a small number of survivors who'd been speaking before then, but Joe was really one of the pioneers and I think felt like all survivors that having the opportunity to tell their story to a younger generation was a way of ensuring that it was remembered. And if I might just read you something, I was, I was looking earlier today, I mentioned that Joe recorded his testimony for the British Library. And at the very end of his interview, he said something which I think is remarkable, and I think particularly pertinent in these circumstances. He said, the only precious thing a person leaves behind is not money or wealth or property, it's the name, a good thought, a good word. If they can say Joe Pearl and such and such a word, it's remembered by others. This is how I feel one lives on. And I think that's very much the case. You know, it's him. It's his name. It's what he said to people, how he talked about his experiences. That's what people will remember him for. That's a, a wonderful thing. Martin Winston, that's absolutely amazing story. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Clive. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And we have with us in the studio, Denise Phillips, who is going to talk to us about food on Yom Kippur, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it, Denise? Tell us about what we're going to be able to do in advance, presumably. Absolutely. What I'm really talking about, because cold near tonight, it's one big rush. So I'm talking about what you can enjoy after the fast, breaking the fast. Very often you are connecting with load of, lots of family and friends and it could be a lot of people. So it can be a lot of cooking in advance. So what I think, this is a beautiful salad. It is light, nutritious, and I think more than anything else, family friendly. It's a salad made with smoked trout, which is decorated with lots of lovely vegetables so we've got lentils um, it's made with pita bread it's and it's also made with goat's cheese if, if you know if you like grape juice you can always admit it and a lovely dressing it's also decorated with blackberries so you've got food that's nutritionally good for you lentils that's going to calm on the stomach you're not always that hungry you know? absolutely and fish is perfect to break the fast yes. on you can make this put it in the fridge 
It works well. So it doesn't have any green leaves with it, does it, which might go soggy? Well, it's got a, a garnish of mustard and cress. How about that? That's oh, well, the, that's that, right. that you can yes. cut. And it's got a little bit of cucumber, but fresh mint, but they can mm. all be thrown on last minute, which is what you want. When you come in from shul. Starving. Starving. <laughs> <laughs> this is While true. While you're having a piece of holler. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Fine. When it comes to salads, they can sometimes be a little bland. How are we going to flay, how are we going to spice up this particular salad? This is made with sumac, and I just wanted to tell you about a little bit about this because I bought this. I've used this spice time and time again, but I actually bought my sumac from Tel Aviv Market, and it is for many for people. It's actually quite really lovely flavour. It's got a red sour spice made from drowned ground berries. And it's very versatile. And I just thought it's a not too overpowering spice to put on something straight after the fast. I've used it myself and you can, in fact, buy it in Waitrose. You don't have to go to Tel Aviv. It's all right. You're absolutely right. But there's nothing better than buying them fresh. And the, yeah. and the ones in the supermarket I know, are nowhere near as pungent. You open the, open the packet and it's a mm. little sort of dull. It hasn't sort of that ignition of zest and vibrance and all those lovely things when you get the fresh spices. But you're absolutely right. Now, if you want even more details than Denise has given us, I suggest that you go to our website, which is jewishviews.co.uk, or indeed to Denise's website, which is jewishcookery.com. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. Even if for the rest of the year we do not hold to a belief in a biblical God, the days of awe and the accompanying rabbinic liturgy reel us back to such imagery. God sat on the throne of judgment as we, the whole house of Israel, pass before our heavenly sovereign, praying that on balance our deeds are skewed towards being scrawled in the book of life. Judgment is an unfortunate term. Firstly, we are in general good people, and secondly, we are surrounded by polarised and concretised conceptions that lead to judging others without first assuming good attention. Generally by label, size of house, political views, clothes we wear, number of children, ethnicity, religiosity, etc. Judgment seems too grave for most years of our life and can alienate, confuse or distract us from the opportunity of Rosh Hashanah. We end up like the ancient Israelites, queuing before Moses day after day to receive pronouncements on all matters of law and life, regardless of magnitude or pettiness. How many squandered hours expended in the glare of the Sinai sun, until Jethro comes and states the obvious, you need help here. There may be a few in the house of Israel who require an audience, for they seek such arbitration, or deserve to hear a home truth or to stand accused, with God sat on the throne of judgment. But for most I believe the view of the back of a comfy armchair would do, in a room subtly lit and a glow illuminating from a hearth, radiating kindness, concern and nurture. Draped over the chair's back is a blanket. There's tapestry, like the folds, ridges and veins addressing the soft skin of an aged hand, illustrates a sacred narrative and affirms a sanctity and wisdom attained only through time. In that chamber, Rosh Hashanah is the opportunity to spend time with an old friend, as Einstein once called God, the Old One. 
For an old friend finds words to comfort and to reassure, realised by simple truth. Not of crimes, for none have been committed, rather of sins, small and plentiful, that have blotted our pursuit to be the perfect us. How simple that sounds, as simple as the impediments to its achievement. So perhaps the honesty required to help improve ourselves requires a further understanding of God. Arthur Green suggests, the God of judgment stands for conscience. Rosh Hashanah becomes the time for self-examination and commitment to growth and changes to habits. The essential statement of faith is that we are capable of change. Or, as Rami Shapiro suggests, on Yom Kippur, we stand before the mirror of all. Thank you, Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Bishop David Walker, Tim Tate, Martin Winston, and of course, Denise Phillips. Thank you to producer Sue Greenberg and to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Do subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Kate Fulton. Me, Diana Toman. And me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.